welcome to episode negative one of Wrapped In Podcast, a podcast about season three of Twin Peaks. I am J.R. Parker. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, T. Kyle King. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Kyle? Uh, I'm I'm doing well, and I'm excited about season three. I, I am too. I'm I'm very excited. You know, I thought that we could give sort of a brief introduction of ourselves. I, I've known Kyle since I was in college at the University of Georgia, and started watching Twin Peaks when I was in middle school. I got into it because of my dad, who was a big TV fan. He recorded everything on VHS, which was the way that I was able to keep watching Twin Peaks for. Years and years before, you know, DVDs came out. Yeah, so it's a really amazing thing, this TV show that I, you know, I, I think is the best television show that's ever been, certainly on network television, if ever, and that never concluded in a way that I think satisfied anybody. Uh, and now to see 25 years later with most of the original cast and most significantly with David Lynch directing every episode, it's hard not to be excited about it. Yeah, and I, I kind of came at it from a, a pretty similar angle. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that about the VHS tapes because I actually, uh, although I recorded the series as well, I actually bought the, and still have, by the way, the Twin Peaks uh, Season 1 VHS box set, which seemed like the coolest thing ever in 1991. Uh, I've followed the show uh, as well. Honestly, I was in college at the time, and, and the... Uh, uh, the girl that I was dating at the time happened to to watch the show, and that's what actually got me into uh, watching the show. Uh, my my interest in the show uh, ultimately lasted a lot longer than uh, than my interest in her, uh, but I still think that that worked out uh, to the good long term. And and although I don't write professionally, I have periodically dabbled in in writing here and there, and it's somewhat noteworthy to me, if to no one else, that uh, in 1997, the first thing I was ever paid for writing uh, was an article in what I guess you would call the fanzine uh, wrapped in plastic. Uh, it was an article called David Lynch and the Happy Ending uh, in which I argued, uh, I'll let others decide how persuasively, but I argued that uh, David Lynch in his own odd way typically does generally arrive at what could be called a happy ending uh, even in dark things like Firewalk With Me, I mean, there's, there's at least a, an uplifting moment in its own odd way to the conclusion. And that Twin Peaks really was the exception to that rule in that it ended uh, in the final episode of season two in a really, really negative place that, that didn't resolve anything. Uh, and my argument 20 years ago was it's time for David Lynch to go back and revisit this. And honestly, I thought there was very little chance of it happening then. I certainly didn't think uh, 20 years later we would be sitting here talking about season three, but particularly the way the dream sequence wrapped up, particularly with the comments that Annie Blackburn made uh, during Fire Walk With Me, although it wasn't planned this way, it really sets up as though it could have been planned this way uh, to, to come back and revisit it 25 years later. What you just said is so fascinating on so many different levels. First of all, the notion that a fanzine would pay you for an article. Inc incredible. Right. <laughs> uh, perhaps even more incredible than the fact that we're, we're going to be watching a season three of Twin Peaks. Do you have that article that we could post online somewhere for our listeners? I'm sure that I do. I, I, I know I got uh, uh, one of the things that I got. I didn't get paid much, but I did get extra copies of the magazine. And so 
I'm sure it's around somewhere, and, and I will definitely make a point of digging it up. That's great. I actually recently got the collected wrapped in plastic. There's like an anthology book. Are you familiar with it? Oh, yeah. Really? I, it. I yeah. was not. I was yeah, not. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll put a link to it somewhere on the internet for you and our listeners to see. I have not gotten that far. Well, into well in that it. case, they're going to they're gonna get they're going to get the money back from me that they paid to me 20 years ago, because I'm sure I'm going to spend that buying this anthology. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, that's great. Um, you, do you think your thesis is changed by subsequent Lynch movies that, you know, Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway, in terms of your happy ending thesis? Very possibly, although I, I would still contend that Lost Highway is is a little bit of a, a gray area in that regard. Uh, the main thing that I was relying on at the time, of course, was Blue Velvet, because you have a movie that starts out, you know, sometimes it's in a bucolic setting, sometimes it's in a suburban setting, but it's always in this very fundamental, basic Americana type setting where you expect uh, everything to be pleasant and nice, and on the surface it appears that everything is pleasant and nice, and then he starts gradually to take you down step by step into the dark underbelly of uh, of what's lurking underneath all this niceness, but then he manages generally to take you back up to the surface, I think because he knows that you're a little bit less easy with and a little less accepting of that surface niceness, and frankly, he knows he can rip the veneer away again anytime he wants. And so he generally tends, and Blue Velvet's a good example of this, to go back up to what looks like this perfectly pleasant concluding moment. And you can read it any of several ways. You know, you've got the bird there with the beetle in his beak, and you know, are you are you celebrating the return of, of the bird, or are you are you you concerned about the uh, the death of the beetle, you know, it's where you're going to place your focus, but it generally comes out with something that's at least okay. Uh, maybe a little disquieting, but it's not completely uncomfortable. Uh, subsequent movies may certainly have, have changed that. Uh, Lynch himself may have changed his attitude. I mean, he certainly seemed to be a lot more uh, optimistic and naive going into Twin Peaks in 1990 than he was by the time he came out and started making Firewalk with me and very static on a TV screen, then being smashed to pieces, uh, which was not a very uh, subtle farewell to network television. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. And actually, the next thing I had on our list of things to talk about are seasons one and two, which, you know, clearly the show changed quite a lot in season two from where it was in season one. I, I rewatched the whole series I think within the past year and in anticipation of this, I've been rewatching every episode that was either written or directed by David Lynch or Mark Frost, which, you know, truly are the highlights of the series. There, sure. There's such a huge difference between a David Lynch directed episode and a non David Lynch directed episode that, you know, it, it's almost like watching a different show. Right. Uh, well, and I think when, when Lynch, particularly at the end, when, when, of course, there were some points in season two where uh, I won't say that the TV show was ever bad, but it certainly was not at the same high level of quality through parts of the second season. And when he came back there at the very end and, of course, directed the final episode, you know, there was a certain amount of, of rebellion and deconstruction against what had uh, become of his idea. You know, you've got the, the moment in... Uh, 
what wound up being, and what is for the moment at least still the finale, of Leland Palmer, um, you know, pure original brown-haired Leland Palmer just stepping out and saying, I did not kill anybody, and then stepping right back out of the frame. And even if you interpret that as, okay, he was possessed by Bob, so yeah, he didn't really kill Laura, he didn't really kill Maddie, still it was Leland who killed Jacques Renault. You know, it was straight up Leland Palmer who went into the hospital and smothered him with a pillow. So that can't literally be true if what we've been told and what we've seen is true. So does that mean that it isn't true? Does that mean that, that, that some of this stuff is, is to be undermined? I mean, you've got with Lynch this basic idea that it's okay for it to be abstract. You know, sometimes sailors playing paddleboard in the lobby of the Great Northern is just a bunch of sailors playing paddleboard in the lobby of the Great Northern. It doesn't have to mean anything bigger, and it can mean something different to me from what it means to you. And, and he, I think, just enjoys the fun of it, the, the conversation, the ability to have a different theory. You know, he's, he's fine with the idea of Pulp Fiction. You never really know what's in the briefcase. You know, it's, it's all MacGuffin to him, whereas with Mark Frost, You've got a little bit more grounding in reality. You've got a little bit more of a, a history with, you know, very realistic television like Hill Street Blues. And his pacing is different. And, and his desire to move a plot along is different. Uh, and I think it's that, that balance between those two forces that really gives the show its dramatic tension. I mean, it could get, frankly, a little boring if you just did David Lynch. It would get a little conventional if you just did Mark Frost, but it's that interplay of those two different approaches that really makes this a unique experience. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think Leland saying I didn't kill anybody, uh, he also could just be lying, you know, not not not, not right, making sure. some, you know, a truth claim that 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 would would put a lie to what we had seen happen previous in the show. He's just in denial entirely about where he is and, and what he's done. And he does kind of, I think if I recall, right. he gives evil Cooper like a kind of grin or knowing look when he says that. So right. sure. I think, yeah, there's, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't disagree at all with, with what you just said. See, and I think the, the essence of it is from, from Lynch's standpoint, if we had David Lynch on, on this podcast with us and said, okay, David, we, we view it differently. We, we disagree on how to read this. Tell us what the right answer is, which is what we as fans a lot of times really want. I think his response would be, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you both have your own take on it, and I don't know that one of you is right and the other one's wrong, and uh, I think it's okay for you both to, to come at this from a different angle. I mean, I think for him, he would rather have that than for there to be a definitive, correct, absolute right answer, uh, which is part of why network television brass had a real problem with him, because they kept saying, hey, when are you going to get around to telling us who killed Laura Palmer? It been up to him. We'd have never found out who killed Laura. No, Paul. that's right. I and mean, I think both both Mark Frost and David Lynch had are on record saying they never wanted it to be this sort of cut and dry, you know, who killed Laura Palmer show. That that was just right. you know something that happened to happen, but they wanted to explore so much else, and I think that they did. Uh, but obviously, the show became completely rudderless for a while after Leland was revealed as the killer, and then committed right. suicide or I, mean, I don't know if you'd say he killed himself or bob killed him i i, I don't know right you know and then we had I, lumberjack I, cooper yeah. and you know the the, the horrible right. side plot with james on the road right uh, probably would you say that's the worst of all the subplots 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, no question in my mind, at least, that, that that is the one. Because it was, again, it was, there was so much about the show that was sort of mocking the conventions of, of soap operatic television, you know, to the point of having everyone watching Invitation to Love on their own television screens. And, and that really just descended into conventional soap operatic uh, plot storytelling. I mean, that, that, could have, that could have played out on Dallas or Dynasty just fine. And, and that's that's what made it not, in any meaningful sense, truly Twin Peaks. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see anything like that in season three. <laughs> I would hope not, yes. <laughs> and then, so I want to then turn to Firewalk With Me, which, you know, there have been some statements from Showtime that Firewalk With Me is going to play a large role in season three, which, as far as I'm concerned, is fantastic, uh, because Firewalk With Me is Absolutely. such a great movie. Because there's so much in Firewalk With Me, and we have just no idea what's going on. <laughs> no, right. no idea. Right. Uh, and, right. and, and it's great. And so it, it's really going to be interesting to see what of that movie is going to map onto season three. Do you have any thoughts or ideas about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you about Firewalk With Me. And the, the neat thing about it, or the interesting thing about it, is that there really were... were two schools of thought on that, and I think it divided into, into two very clean camps, that you had people who came at Firewalk With Me as their original experience with Twin Peaks and didn't have any of the backstory of the series first. And, and it was people who didn't really have a frame of reference. You know, it's, it's, it's like making The Sound and the Fury your first Faulkner novel. You, you don't know how to read a Faulkner novel yet. You really need to ease into this a little bit. You know, you need to go read Intruder in the Dust and kind of get the rhythm of it before you dive into the deep end of the pool. And so many critics who didn't have any familiarity with the show watched the movie and, and their interpretation of it was that, of course, Bob was not literally uh, real. He was this manifestation that Laura Palmer had come up with in her mind as a way of avoiding the reality of what was happening in her household. Uh, and if you come at it from the other side, where you've watched the TV show first, even though it's the prequel, it occurs before everything else, you really need to have had that experience of going through the whole show before you can dive into the movie to have any idea what any of it at least ties into, never mind what it means. I mean, again, I mentioned before Annie Blackburn showing up for one scene, you know, to say that Dale's still in the Black Lodge and it's 25 years later. And, you know, again, at the time, he couldn't possibly have known that we would be sitting here in 2017 getting ready for season three. That wasn't anywhere near the radar screen. And yet it, it lines up perfectly. So there's so much in there. Uh, particularly with it being on Showtime, where you're, you're not bound by uh, so many of the restrictions that, that restrain network television. He's just able to go completely wild in pursuing all of these ideas as far as he wants to take them. So yeah, it, it could really be what it would have looked like if, if Firewalk With Me had been... I mean, imagine if the freedom of Firewalk With Me had been available to David Lynch as he did the, the episodes of, of season one. I mean, that's that's the possibility. That's the ceiling that exists for season three. Right. It's, a, it's super exciting. I mean, I think finale may be my favorite episode of Twin Peaks. It holds yeah. up so well, and it feels a lot like Firewalk With Me. And so that's right. apparently what we're going to be getting in season three. Also, I think possibly Kiefer Sutherland's greatest performance 
yeah. Firewalk with me. <laughs> right. I, I don't. Right. I don't know about Chris yeah. Isaac or how how much how many other films he's been in, but he did a good job as well. Really enjoyed uh, Kiefer in uh, Firewalk with me. Yeah, well, the neat thing with Chris Isaac, and I, I was watching it myself recently, of course, because of course they've been showing it on on Showtime uh, as we get ready for for season three, and. What, what struck me about it was, it was back when Chris Isaac was a thing. I mean, Chris Isaac was big. And you remember that there's that very, very brief snippet of Chris Isaac as one of the FBI agents in uh, Silence of the Lambs. You know, when they come in and Hannibal Lecter has broken out, and it's one of the most dramatic moments, maybe the most dramatic action moment of, of the entire movie. And you just have this brief clip of FBI agent Chris Isaac just sort of darting in briefly and i don't know if lynch had that in mind but just that that connection um chris isaac as fbi agent drawing the line from silence of the lambs into twin peaks i just think is is just a a, a cool line of thought to tease out uh even if it's completely coincidental have you watched hannibal I have not. I have not it's a good show i, I actually i don't think i saw any of the movies after Sons of the Lambs, like there was a there was a, right. a Hannibal movie, and then there was another one. I think I, yeah, I, uh, they did uh, Red yeah, Dragon. Well, Red, right, yeah, right, right. So I I read the books, but I didn't didn't watch the movies. Right. But so the Hannibal series, which was it's, in a lot of ways, I don't think a show like Hannibal or many many other shows we could talk about would have ever been made absent Twin Peaks. Absolutely, in, sure. In, in, it has a, a heavily surreal quality. It, it's worth checking out. I mean, it, it, it. You know, the, the level of violence is almost pornographic, especially given that it's on network TV. Right. But that's right. not that different from a lot of David Lynch films. Right, Fair and shows. But it, yeah, I, I would recommend it. But that's that's an interesting connection. I forgot about Chris Isaac being in Sons of the Land. You know, I want to talk about the secret history of Twin Peaks, which is kind of the first newish thing that we can talk about, given that it's a book that came out in two, 2016. For those of you that aren't familiar with it, The Secret History of Twin Peaks is a, a book by Mark Frost that's a sort of... Um, compendium of documents and the the sort of trope of the book is that it's a compendium of documents put together uh by a, a person who refers to himself as is it the collector i think it's the, the archivist, archivist the archivist and then the archivist's set of documents are being read through and commented upon by an fbi agent who is working for gordon cole and so in the course of these documents that have been put together by the archivist there are a bunch of sort of little stories about the history of Twin Peaks reaching back very far, uh, you know, hundreds of years before the show. So you start out, you know, with the story of Lewis or Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark having a brief visit to Twin Peaks and then his subsequent death uh, all the way up to uh, the events of the show, some sidelines involving, you know, the, the occult and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and uh, as well as Richard Nixon and UFOs. So it's a it's a really good book. I enjoyed reading it, but there there's just a lot to, to talk about. And one of the things that I, I remember reading in an interview with David Lynch, somebody asked him if he'd read the book and he said no. He hadn't read it. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know we, we come into the book thinking, well, now this is going to be like the Rosetta Stone of understanding everything in Twin Peaks and and the show, but you know, right. we just have to let go of that on some level because of some of the stuff you mentioned earlier. But David Lynch and I think even Mark Frost are focused more on the experience of things than 
tying everything up. One of the things that I didn't notice so much when I read it the first time is that there are a ton of inaccuracies, seeming inaccuracies in the book. And I don't know how much you picked up on this, Kyle, where, you know, like just Dr. Jacoby's birthday or age like changes in like three different places in the book. The story of, of right. Big Ed is is different in the book than what we know from the series. And, you know, what what do you think we can take from those? Um, you, you have to assume that those are intentional, right? I would think so. I mean, they, there's there's even one point, and I, I will I will freely admit that that I am um, probably uh, overly attentive to things that may or may not have any actual significance to them at all. But you know, there's a there's a point. Uh, Nadine Hurley, you've got a uh, you've got a report from Calhoun uh, Memorial Hospital in Twin Peaks, where uh, Dr. Jacoby has done an evaluation of Nadine Hurley, uh, and on the form, and again, it's, it's presented as this printed, uh, in those days, probably carbon copy type form, uh, and it has on there, of course, lines for things like date of birth and name and all that, and there's a line for marital status, and it's this printed form, and marital is misspelled with two R's, and it's M-A-R-R-I-T-A-L, when, of course, it should only be one, but he's examining Nadine Hurley, a woman whose husband at that point was carrying on with his high school sweetheart <laughs> at the double R diner and marital at a point when her marriage is in peril, marital is misspelled with a double R. I mean, I, you read those kind of things and, and you think this, this can't just be coincidental. This just can't be a typo that someone managed to make. But at the same time, although it's Mark Frost writing the book, his collaborator was David Lynch, and as you know, Bob came into the show because the actor who played Bob was actually one of the camera crew, and they blocked a shot incorrectly so that he shows up in a mirror in Leland Palmer's home uh, while Sarah Palmer is having one of her breakdown moments, and they go to David Lynch and they say, okay, we've got to reshoot this because... Frank was, was in the shot, you can see him in the mirror. And, and instead of saying, oh, shoot, all right, everybody places everyone, let's reshoot this, Lynch just says, hey, let's roll with it. You know, this is one of those things that you got to take on faith that it was meant to happen this way, and now I got to figure out how does this work its way in. And as we now know, it worked its way in in a phenomenal way. Uh, and that, that arose out of just sheer accident. And I think that's the beauty of what Lynch does, that He's fine with things not completely adding up because it's the stuff you don't plan that can lead you to some really wonderful creative places. And if you map it all out and you just insist upon sticking to that strict roadmap, you're going to miss a few things that could happen on the journey that are right. just magic. I mean, there's they, they do have a plan. I mean, right? He he presented Showtime with a 400 page. Right. You know, book or document, and that was the basis for deciding they were going to do right. the show. So, I mean, something's in there. We don't know. I, I wonder if we'll ever get to see it. I hope that maybe we right. will. It'll be so much fun to sort of reconstruct what they where they started and where they ended up. But you know, in terms of sure. what you know, the secret history of Twin Peaks. It's a deliberate project by Mark Frost. You know, what's he trying to do? Right. Um, I don't know. I wish I did. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's a really fun read, and it ties in a lot of stuff. Frankly, I. I, and I'm ashamed to admit this, but I had to go and, and Google some of this stuff, some of these names that obviously I knew many of them were real people. Uh, but 
you know, how much of it was being fictionalized, and obviously uh, they're inserting Twin Peaks characters who we know are fictional into this, you know, this larger narrative. But at the same time, there's a remarkably large percentage of that that is documented historical fact. I mean, there are people at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory uh, who, in fact, were into these freaky-deaky Aleister Crowley occult things. I mean, that's, that's not make-believe. You know, the stuff with uh, Jackie Gleason supposedly going with Richard Nixon to a, uh, uh, a military base and seeing uh, a, a captured alien. You know, I'm not saying that happened, but Jackie Gleason sure right. told people right. that happened. So the question I have then is, is Aaron Burr from the Black Lodge? <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's certainly a possibility. I mean, if you try and tie things together, I mean, the, the historical figures that are in there, yeah, could, uh, could very well be, which, which suddenly makes the uh, musical uh, Hamilton well, a whole sure, lot more interesting Well, sure, the stakes are much higher than we thought. I mean, uh, I think you and I both right. decided in <laughs> last year that, you know, we were with Burr. Uh, <laughs> on the Hamilton question, right, right. <laughs> but now I've had, I've got to completely yeah. revisit my views, and and sure. it does seem you know, man, Meriwether Lewis he got a tough rap from history as this sort of suicidal yes, alcoholic, yeah. And uh, you know, from what I was able to dig through after I read the section on Lewis and in the book, you know that the the evidence is is a little bit sketchy as to you know his death and his immediate right. circumstances, so. Yeah, that, that's, but that's the interesting part of it, because you're right. Mark Frost clearly was meticulous in putting this together. And while, while you're right, there are some things that clearly were inconsistent. You know, there was a, a book that came out subsequent to the, uh, to the release of Fire Walk With Me. It would have been around 1995. It's a book from uh, Wayne State University Press that, that does critical approaches to Twin Peaks. And it, it goes through... Uh, a lot of just, you know, uh, critical examination by, by academic scholars of, of some of the things that were going on. And in the back of the book, there's this meticulous calendar tracing the events. You know, we know when Laura Palmer was murdered, obviously. So from that date, we're able to extrapolate to what happened on each date of the calendar. And of course, it, it winds up, the, the show wraps up on, on, on Easter Sunday, basically, and bleeding over into the following Monday. And if you track that calendar, most of the events of the show do line up pretty neatly with, with the calendar from, uh, from 20 years earlier. You know, we see uh, in The Secret History of Twin Peaks, we've got Cooper completing a report on Josie in the bookhouse on March the 15th. Um, you know, we've got uh, Doug Milford sending messages to people also on March the 15th. You know, the, uh, we've got uh, Cooper paying a visit to someone immediately after his return from the Black Lodge on March the 28th. And so all of those things line up with the calendar as it exists pretty well. So, I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's some stuff that's new. There's some stuff that's uh, arguably a continuity error. But there's also some stuff that, that jibes exactly with, with what we know is there, which I think goes to your point that we have to assume that some of the mistakes, seeming mistakes, are deliberate given all the things that Frost so clearly, so methodically, so meticulously reconstructed to make sure they lined up with what we already knew. Right. I wonder about the significance of this book relative to, say, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer and the book My Life, My Tapes, which is a transcription right. of tapes that Dale Cooper made from childhood, you know, up through the events of the show to 
provide some insight into his right. biography. Uh, I really enjoyed both those books. My Life, My Tapes in particular, I enjoyed because uh, Dale Cooper is such a great sure. character and to get this sort of insight into how he came to be is, is definitely worth checking out for fans of the show that haven't read it already. Right. And I, I don't know that we can say that the, either of those books are, you know, quote unquote canon uh, because we don't have some executive at Disney right. who's deciding what's canon and isn't in the world of Twin Peaks. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I always certainly took uh, Secret Diary of Laura Palmer as as canonical because obviously the, the diary itself is in the show and, and the published diary, at least the parts that we've seen in the show generally yeah, no, does I, 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 track. Uh, and if I remember correctly, it was David Lynch's daughter who actually wrote it. Yeah, is that, am I freaky that as hell and, and true. It, it was Jennifer Lynch that wrote the book, and it actually yes. came out while the second season, yeah. in the midst of second season or between the first season and the second season. So, yeah, I, I think it's safe to assume that it's it's functionally right. canonical if anything is canonical in the world of Twin Peaks. Uh, right. My Life, My Tapes, I don't know. I think that came out between the second season and Fire Walk With Me, if I recall correctly. That's That sounds right, yeah. And and again, that one, I agree with you. As much as I enjoyed it, it, it may not... Uh, it may not be able to be taken as, as literally true, but you know the interesting thing to me about it is with, with you mentioning um, uh, that Lynch says, and who knows if it's true, but you know he says he hasn't read um, uh, the secret history of Twin Peaks. And of course, Frost clearly put a lot of thought and a lot of effort and a lot of research into it. And, and I actually think there's some, uh, some interesting possibilities there that they've, they've, they've each mapped it out on their own They've each not necessarily, uh, you know, it isn't like Rodgers and Hammerstein where one of them wrote the lyrics and gave it to the other one and the other one composed the music. It's like these things were being done independently and then they come together. And, uh, you know, it's almost like there are surprises in store that David Lynch is allowing himself to be surprised by, by not knowing completely what his collaborator is doing. You know, I mean, that seems like a very Lynchian thing to do to not be told or to not allow himself to, to know everything that's there so that he can have that moment of surprise and, and he can see where that inspiration leads. Uh, so much as I think it means that he's leaving the door open this rather than, than him driving the bus. And, and that may seem a little scary uh, because it may mean that there's not really a driver to this bus and that we're going on a journey that's, that's you mentioned it being rudderless, it may be without a pilot. Uh, but that's also what makes it really interesting and really fascinating and really fun, even if it's a little bit Oh, yeah, bit no, I mean, I, I'll take Mark Frost and David Lynch in the boat without a rudder uh, over the people that were involved in season two, for sure, for <laughs> right. sure. Um, right, right. The next thing I wanted, so I, I thought they could talk about one sort of central mystery that is very important, seemingly, especially to the extent that it was figured very heavily in Firewalk with Me and as well as the Secret History, and that's the Ring. What what do we know about the Ring? Right. Uh, what is it? What is its significance? And you know, because I I have to believe that that's going to be. I think it's going to come up in season two. No, I, I think you're definitely right about that. I mean, it, it, it's clearly something important. You know, it kept cropping up almost as a, as a little bit of marginalia. You know, it, it was the sort of thing, particularly in, uh, in the secret history, where 
it's the archivist pulling all these documents together that even allowed anyone to see that there was a ring and what its significance might be. And even that was only hinted at. And the secret history was, if anything, more clear about that than Firewalk With Me, if for no other reason, because as you say, it's impossible to know what's going on at all in whole stretches of Firewalk With Me. So yes, I think it's significant. Yes, I think it's important and we're going to see it. Whether we're ever going to get a clear-cut, definitive, straight answer that ties up every loose end, uh, I doubt it. But it's not like they're doing a six or seven or even 12 or 13 episode season. I mean, they're doing a full-fledged, honest-to-goodness, full-length season of television. And, and it's going to be real difficult to maintain that balancing act and not answer at least some What do you some think question. of the theory that Mike gave the ring to Laura in order to prevent Bob from being able to possess her? Are you familiar with that one? Uh, I mean, there's... Yeah, I, I, I am. And, and that, again, that seems to, particularly with what we're given in uh, secret history, you know, there, there does seem to be um, the closest analog, and I apologize for this, is, you know, it's kind of like the, uh, the ring in Lord of the Rings, that, you know, it, it, at one hand, uh, on the one hand, it does provide you with a measure of protection and a measure of power. But on the other hand, it, it also has a measure of possession to it that you want to put it on some of the time. You want to have it available, but you don't want to leave <laughs> that thing on all the time. Uh, that's, that's not going to end well for you. You know, keep it in your pocket. Keep it in, uh, keep it in your suitcase, but Just, you don't want you know, to have that thing on your finger 24-7. A little mound that's, of that's earth going underneath to lead your trailer. You to place. That'll be fine. <laughs> right. That'll work. That'll um, work. <laughs> okay. Well, this is, uh, I think, been pretty helpful. Is, is there anything else you want to talk about before we uh, sign off on episode negative one of Wrapped in Podcast? No, I, I think we've covered as much as we possibly can uh, at this point. Uh, the one thing that I want to, the one caution I want to urge on people, and, and honestly, I'm saying this to myself as much as to any other living human being. Um, I know we want to know what the answers are. I know we would really, really, really like episode one of season three to start out with where we left in the bathroom of Cooper's room at the Great Northern, and we're going to get you know a, a clear-cut answer, and we're going to have Bob's going to be out of Agent Cooper, and Agent Cooper is going to be back to normal and all that. That isn't going to happen, and we really shouldn't want it to happen, but I think at some deep level we do. And the more we want it, the more David Lynch senses that this is what we're asking him for, the more it assures that that's not Oh, yeah. I mean, I, not just for the first get. episode. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we never get a definitive sure. answer about what exactly happened with Bob possessing Cooper at the end of season two. Yeah, And that's fine. We're just going to have to live with that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know what? There's, there's uncertainty to life. Uh, and, and there's going to be uncertainty to, uh, to art. And, and that's what that's what frankly makes it fun to talk about. You know, you and I uh, went and saw, gosh, what was it? I'm, I'm lost highway together 20 years ago. And, and, you know, we've been talking about it ever since. And the movies that have a mystery running for an hour and 45 minutes and then wrap it all up in, in a neat bow at the end. Uh, you may talk about those from time to time, but you're probably not still delving into those mysteries 25 years later the way we are with this. So Lynch knows what he's doing and, and we just need to trust him that if he's given command, he's going to, he's going to take it to some right. fun places well, uh, that are worth going. 
on our next episode, we're going to discuss what may be the central uh, the central mystery of Twin Peaks, and maybe the answer to everything, which is, what if the Norwegians never actually left? <laughs> so we'll leave it at that. Thanks very much, and uh, thanks for listening. Bye bye.